Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. SavvyCal is a new scheduling tool that prioritizes the recipient's scheduling experience. If you're okay with sending out a generic link that forces the recipient to jump through a few hoops to meet with you, SavvyCal probably won't be a good fit for you. But if you care about providing an enjoyable experience for anyone booking a meeting with you, they're worth checking out. Create a free account at SavvyCal.com EIM and also get your first month of a paid account free by using the code EIM. On the show today is Yarun Kordhout. Yarun is the co-founder of Salesflare, a sales CRM focused on data automation. I wanted to bring him on because Salesflare is in one of the most competitive software categories, CRM, and has somehow managed to carve out a substantial part of the market to build out a large, profitable business. So you'll hear about how they became one of the most successful campaigns on AppSumo of all time, the new reseller channel they're pioneering with Samsung AppStack, and what it takes to grow it in an ultra-competitive market. So to start out, I love asking my guests, did you ever think that you'd be running a software business for a living? Sort of, but not really, I guess. I think my first thought that came close was when I was 15, 16 or so. I thought I was going to have a web design business because somehow I stumbled into that. I was like, first, you know, when I was 14, there were like these GeoCities websites where you could build this really simple thing. It's some text and then some animations. And then you could have this little counter that would count how many people came to your little website. But at some point, I started discovering the joy of, of HTML and then Flash. Uh, you could build anything. Things could move. It could be animated. So you could make it interactive. You could basically almost build an app. And I really saw myself doing that in the future. Yeah? But making applications? No, I don't think so. So today you're the founder of Salesflare. It's a CRM in a very competitive space. But can you walk me through kind of like a brief timeline of your career and how essentially you got to where you are today? Yeah. So maybe starting at the, at the websites, I was, I was 15, 16. I sort of knew I was going to study engineering. So at that moment I thought it's going to be computer engineering because that fits best with my future plans, right? I went to the open day. I saw what they were at the university, what they were displaying and who was displaying it and stuff. And I thought, eh, maybe computer engineering is not for me. It seemed very distant from the world. And I always like to build stuff for people and it didn't seem like they were building stuff for people. So I ended up doing electronical engineering, so some business management, which was something I really love to do. Like I, on the side, I had a little secondhand cell phone business where I would mainly buy phones in the UK and in Germany and then resell them in Belgium for a higher price. And I then went into biomedical engineering in my master's because it just was super interesting and it felt like it could really do something for the world. But then when I graduated and I was looking for jobs, I didn't, I didn't want to do an engineering job even. I wanted to do something with people and it felt like they were always going to put me in a back room somewhere, make me create some stuff and never talk to people. You know? And I, I just didn't want to do that. So at some point throughout a lot of interviews, I was like, no. This is not going to be me. And that evening, one of my friends was already working and he had a credit card and stuff. I applied with his credit cards for a business school entry exam. My parents didn't know anything because they wanted me to get a job. And 
fast forward a bit, I got accepted. I, I had to convince my parents. I said, I'll, I'll pay it all. And then I went to, to business school. And from there, actually, I made the switch completely um, from engineering. I went into marketing because that felt like I could actually do something with people. Like I would put products into the market, which was, which was I thought, the part that I enjoyed most. Turns out in the end that I, I really like building stuff and putting them in the market, not per se, just putting in the market. But that's, that's, that's what I thought would be my best learning experience because I still saw myself creating a company, but I, I, I didn't really believe in myself. So I thought I need to learn at a big company. And for me, that first big company was Baxter. It's a big pharma company. I was doing marketing there. It turned out to be really, really boring. Like I had absolutely, it, I wasn't putting a product in the market. Basically what I was doing was like creating brochures and teaching salespeople how to use them. It was, it was not much more than that. And yes, I could build a little patient website or whatever, but it wasn't very uh, all-encompassing or interesting or so. So I very quickly switched to, I think I was eight months in when I got a new job, which was sort of combining the things I knew. I thought I, thought I know how pharma marketing works now. I was a bit uh, arrogant about it, perhaps. And I know how websites work, which I saw that people in pharma didn't get at all. So I thought that's going to be my next business. But then I stumbled upon a guy who actually had a business that did that, but then bigger, they would guide pharma companies or life science companies in general through the process of becoming more digital. So from, from doing service with their customers to building out campaigns, including websites, strategy, impact measurement, all this kind of stuff. And I joined there as an account manager. That's where I learned sales because I, I could really take care of customers end to end and I could pull in people within the company whenever uh, required, but I was, I was responsible for finding customers, for listening to their issues, for coming up with solutions, for writing proposals, making budgets, managing the projects, or at least some projects I could sort of hand over, but most of them I was supposed to then also lead myself, get people in the company to do stuff, you know, the whole thing, which was pretty cool. But from there, I always knew that I, I wanted to start something. And I had a bunch of startup projects I actually went, went part-time at that company. So hmm. three days a week, I was, uh, I was consulting. And two days a week, I was, uh, I was trying stuff. And I think I probably failed three or four times before uh, starting Salesflare. I had a little, how to explain, online medical journal sort of for doctors. It would sort of get it. Like know their interests and then based on their interests surface the, the, the most interesting research for them because it's really mm. difficult for them to follow the right research. Then I had a, it turned out that I didn't really have a business model, which was an issue. Mm. Then I had a website for the World Cup in Brazil to help people to organize their whole trip, which was nice because I would, for instance, point them to flight websites, explain exactly how to do stuff and I got affiliate money. The issue there was that it, it was quite transient, I think you say in English. It, the, the World Cup came and my website was dead. Right. And around the same time, I also went to a health startup weekend because I really wanted to start something in the health tech again. We won the, the, the health startup weekends. We ended up getting investment from an accelerator. But then <laughs> we were just a bunch of guys who met in the health startup weekends, like startup weekends. 
thing mm. and with money we all had jobs and we had little commitments i i quickly scrapped that well after a bit the company now still exists it has raised lots of money but it's actually only the sort of the ceo at the startup weekend that continues with it <laughs> wow. and then my current co-founder called one day and he, i met him during the the first startup thing that I mentioned because in the Founder Institute I was in Accelerator and he was working on something else back then but then he had another company and he calls me and he says like I'm going to Vegas there's a big conference there uh, we're going to sell our software and we still need a sales guy do you want to join I was like sure and so we had fun for a week in Vegas but we also got a lot of leads at the conference and we got really excited we started working together on that and that's actually where we got the issue that like we had all these leads they were interested but it was going to take some time to follow them up we were selling to business intelligence software people and they have enormously long sales cycles and we didn't find any system that worked for us to do that follow up because every time we would run into the issue that we wouldn't like keep it up to date well enough and that would fail on us we would basically fail on the system but then the system would fail on us and then we were like, I mean, that doesn't make sense. This system could fill out itself. I mean, the data is already in our emails. It's in our calendar. It's in our phone. And there's some stuff in social media. We're pulling in stuff from company databases and tracking. And, and why isn't it all connected? And that's, that's when we started Salesflare. Hmm. And what was it about Salesflare that kind of stuck, you know, that was more promising than the other ideas before? I guess it was uh, a few things coming together. First of all, there's a market. It's the biggest enterprise software market in the world. So there's, there's definitely like a potential market there. Secondly, we saw that CRMs, despite it being a huge market and there being lots of products, big names and all that, we only heard that it didn't work. So, and we said, well, it doesn't work and we can fix it. So it was sort of with that idea that we said, okay, we're going to do this. And then we actually stopped doing the other stuff we were doing quite quickly and focused all our time on Salesforce. Wow. And how'd you get those first customers? Were they from that or from like a conference or were they sort of like tangentially related or where did they, those first ones come from? At first we focused a lot on our own network and we definitely got a few from there. We started off with a lot of customer interviews and then at the end of these customer interviews ask like are there other people we should talk to and then go from there we got some good relationships there our first customer though i remember was we always had to believe that it was a very naive sort of thinking and you know you see all these startups and they come in the press and all of a sudden they're known that's at least the outside impression that you have so we were like we need to get in the press we'll be known and it's going to explode so we did spend some time trying to do that. And one, one day, we were in different publications. We were in a, in a not too big Dutch marketing magazine slash blog. And there was a, a sales director at a software company in the Netherlands who had a, a lot of salespeople and Microsoft Dynamics. And he said, like, it doesn't work. They don't want to use it. It doesn't help us uh, follow up our leads. Uh, and it seems that you guys built something that, like, keeps itself alive. I'm interested. We didn't have much at that moment. I think he had five requirements for us. 
to take off before he wanted to buy. But then he immediately put money on the table for a yearly subscription and we felt kind of rich, despite it not being a lot of money. That, that was our first customer. And I, th I think our second one came out of our startup community that we were in. And our third one also. And then from there, it was mostly own network and PR but in the beginning until we stumbled upon good online sources. At the beginning, we were quite successful in Quora. You know, oh, really? like Quora was getting a lot of traffic from Google for specific questions about what were good serums for this and that and stuff. And then the game was just to be at the top and then you could very quickly get traffic. It's not really the case anymore. They don't get that traffic anymore. And, and, and it's really hard to stay on top of any question because of the the devious upvote downvote system right. where if you get downvote a lot you stay down but the back then it worked and then i think the next thing that worked for us was product hunt we we had a gigantic product hunt launch which we when, when was that by the way that was in 2017 okay so it's, yeah. it's been a while yeah it's uh it's more than four years ago when we launched a product hunt and that i i think more than today really worked like hmm. people were really engaged with product hunt i think product hunt is bigger now but less, less less engaged with its community but i remember launching and we got 300 400 trials in 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 two days which was which was gigantic for us back then and we signed up quite some customers i must say that they were not the customers that stayed with us the longest they were really like people that try new stuff uh, kind of customers mm -hmm. But that, that gives a big push, especially then combined with after that, we, we launched on AppSumo. The guys of AppSumo saw our success in product hunts. So they were like, okay, well, we'll give a CRM a try because they were like CRMs, that's not gonna work. And that was a gigantic success as well. It was, imagine onboarding 6,000 companies in a matter of three weeks on your software when before that it was like, <laughs> more like in the in the the tens or something right that was a huge shock to our system hmm. but that from there that brought us more cloud more word of mouth more reviews you know all these kind of things that then helped us to build up all the organic traffic uh, we have today which still largely comes from word of mouth from review sites from people mentioning us in blogs, you know, these kind of things. And then next to that, some of our content marketing, which is also only helped by, by the other things, of course. Right, right. Yeah, the AppSumo one is, is interesting, especially given sort of how early on it was. Was that something that you like actively promoted on your end as well, or is that purely sort of on AppSumo's side to promote to their list and their ecosystem? Oh, it's their ecosystem. Like, first of all, our ecosystem was really, really small. Their uh, list at the time was like a million people. So, and secondly, we didn't necessarily wanted our existing customers to become AppSumo customers because financially that's not the best uh, idea. I think of all the customers we had at that moment, I don't remember the exact count. It's been a while, but I think three switched when we were on AppSumo. And I think two of them even found out through one of our team members, not necessarily mm. through AppSumo, which was dumb. But yeah, it's certainly not something you want to do like too late in the game. 
Like for instance, recently I saw Ubenda, the, the, the thing with the privacy notices on the website. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. They launched an AppSumo and we use it, right? And then they, they had this, this thing that was even on their AppSumo side that if you're a current customer, you couldn't get the deal, but they would give you this really big discount instead mm -hmm. to, to, to make sure that there wouldn't be this huge revolt. And, and it's, it's, it's a really weird thing to do at some point, you know? Right, right. It makes a lot more sense early on when sort of you have those downstream effects later of now you have the awareness and the clout and you have all these people who can, you know, be kind of these ambassadors for you and, and, and give you reviews and things like that. But later, you know, we don't need all those things as much, then the value proposition isn't as, as strong. No, and it's, it's kind of dangerous also, I think. Well, it depends, but, of course, how much your, your audience overlaps, but otherwise... Yeah. But it, it did help you early on, I mean, given with your launch strategy, right? Because uh, you mentioned you got about 6,000 customers and was the cash important to be able to keep growing? And also, did you see some of those kind of like viral effects of people sharing Salesflare after that and everything kind of being kickstarted from that one campaign? I think the cash is nice, but it's not big. I think it's, a, it's generally known that the, the line share goes to AppSumo, but I... I look at it as, as free marketing like there aren't many opportunities where they'll they'll sell you to a million people and of course you need to be able to maintain these people i mean you need to offer proper support you know, listen to issues help with whatever at that point we even said we'll help you with your imports and stuff like that you need to make people happy because otherwise it's not going to turn out to be great marketing in the end. So we, we, we treat them just like our normal customers, even though they've only paid us once. And I think you need to go in, in, into it with that perspective and not a quick cash grab. Oh, that's also possible, but what, what you know, I've seen some companies do that as well. But what you create then is uh, a, a lot of upset people, let's say. <laughs> And yeah. it's not really yeah. great uh, for your future companies you want to build or so. But we use our Sumo users for lots of feedback. We asked them to review us. And apart from that, yes, they only paid us once. They can get extra users. Like we did a deal where the AppSumo deal was like uh, first user for free and all other users at 50% off. Mm. So we got a relatively large amount of upsells from it, at least not, it's not much compared to our total revenue, but if I, I, I know about the upsells that most companies did from AppSumo, and it's usually really, really small because people just expect to buy that lifetime deal and then not pay anything else. It sort of comes with it. Right. But yeah, I think it's mostly about the marketing. Yeah, yeah, mostly, like you said, I mean, what other ways do you get to sell in front of a million people, right? Just sort of overnight and uh, get that That almost never happens, yeah. Now we are, we're just listed on the Samsung App Stack Marketplace and okay. Samsung has big plans with it. So let's see where that goes. But those are the sort of once in a, in a few years opportunities, I think. Yeah, I did see that. I was, I was wondering if you could expand that because I think it's a fairly recent development, right? And I didn't even know that Samsung, Samsung had a sort of, you know, software marketplace. Could you explain like what it is, how it works, and how that came to be for, for you guys in particular as well? Yeah. 
So, so the idea for Samsung there is they offer they they sell devices, right? And they're huge. Like they're the number one or number two biggest smartphone manufacturer in the world. They like either it's Apple or it's Samsung. They always switch. Right. Now, what is a better way for them to sell more devices? It's basically to lead people to a site where there's also software. And then they, when they package devices with it, they get a discount. Then they can do these this awesome package deals. And there isn't really any really working like SMB marketplace yet. There are a few initiatives, but most people don't know of them. Some things have been tried and there's some startups that have tried to create this kind of marketplaces where you can subscribe to different software and then pay it from one place, you know. But I think Samsung can really pull it off because of their scale, because of their marketing budgets. They are looking to spend, and I, I think it's internal Samsung information, so I cannot say much, but uh, think about it in the scale of uh, tens of millions on promoting this marketplace, which actually gives it a chance that it will, it will get off the ground. And what they're trying to do there is, is, is selling extra devices by making sure that there is more around it like you are a small business you need the best software you don't want to go in all these places and buy it you just go in the samsung app stack you say okay i need a crm i get salesforce i need google workspace there's canva on there i need canva i need something for uh, time tracking project management paymo okay i check out i add some devices i think there's a Potentially a plan that they, they then immediately load it on the devices as well. And that's it. You manage it from there. You say, I want an extra license. Choop. You see, it's, I wow. think it's a really, uh, really great idea. How they got to us. Actually, I have this Google alert on one of our competitors, uh, PipeDrive. And I saw that they were getting on it. And I said, oh, I need to contact these people. I contact them and they were immediately like, oh, we were just going to contact you. And I was like, oh, great. We had a call. It seemed like a great fit. Uh, what they're mostly looking for is like CRMs that are really easy, that are there for small businesses because they, yeah, very important for them that, uh, that these businesses get set, set up really quickly and all that. And they had been looking on G2.com where we are ranked in the... I think oh, no, right now we're number four easiest to use. So there was a match. We discussed for a bit. The contracts are really fair, I must say. And then the, the main issue was then the, you know, the, because we didn't have any other companies selling our licenses yet, right? The, we had to develop this whole API on which Samsung plugs in. So that was a bit of work. But that's all set up. It should work now. You can try it if you want to buy some sales for in the Samsung AppSec website. Yeah, yeah, the, I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. Absolutely. That's pretty fascinating. I mean, I never, like you said, it's still a relatively newer idea. Like maybe a few people have attempted it, but it hasn't really been done at scale where it's sort of like a normal thing to do. And they're also, it sounds like, targeting pretty internationally as well, not just, not just Belgium or the US or the right now. Regions. It sounds like they're going everywhere right now AppStack is 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 aimed at the u.s i mean you could always fake that you're in the u.s when you're not but they are aiming it at the u.s for now it's it's launched from samsung enterprise america or something 
and they have lots of different like Samsung is a huge conglomerate and it's one of the the pieces of it that has launched it yeah so I mean what are you expecting from it like uh, I know it's still very early and you don't have any like hard numbers yet but no idea no idea whatsoever I mean it's a it's a bet on their end it's a bet on our end let's see what it gives yeah I mean I hope it works out it sounds really really fascinating especially given um it's mainly targeted towards small businesses, like you said, right? So people are mm -hmm. looking for software and for devices. And so even by devices, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that's also including like laptops and phones. And so it's for someone who's like just starting out, right? And maybe starting up a new business down the street or a new consultancy or things like that. Am I right? Yeah, yeah that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Or, or you just want to replace everything that you people have. I heard that they already had orders where it was like, I don't know, exactly 10, 20 devices for the company and then add some software and, you know, it's, it's quite efficient. Yeah, it's all bundled, all packaged for you. That's really, really, we'll have to follow up and see how that works. And I'll be following them closely to see if there's any, any updates there. One of the other things that piqued my interest was how you said that you got some initial traction from PR as well. How do you go about doing that? I mean, I, mean for, I know for me, PR is a bit of like a black box. Like I don't have a ton of experience doing it. It's still kind of like, well, do you just like pitch journalists and then like spray and pray and hope that someone reaches back out? Or like, do you no. come, you know, with a pitch? What was the approach that worked for you guys? Yeah, we try different things, but the spray and pray approach usually doesn't work. It's good to build relationships with uh, journalists. Like the best articles we got was through someone else. Like I, I mentioned that, that Dutch marketing blog that was actually happened because we went to a conference which was organized by some uh, former colleagues of mine. And one of these former colleagues, like a journalist asked her like, do you know of any startups at the conference here that I should talk to that we can write something about? And she said, sure, I'll talk to Jeroen. And then our best articles came because uh, a fellow startup connected us with a journalist who was interested in writing about us. It wasn't all the articles. I mean, some of them came through the more spray and pray approach, but that was a, a small amount. And it's more the specialized ones. You don't get in TechCrunch, for instance, with spray and pray approach or something. We did get on the on the TechCrunch. The one I was I was I was thinking about was what's it called again? Something with CRM. So it's specifically about CRM, and I mean. We sent them an email and they were interested and they, they, they put it on there. But then it doesn't have this gigantic reach to all the people we are aiming at, of course. TechCrunch for us happened because we actually went to, uh, like, there was, they did a, a contest for TechCrunch Disrupt where you could sign up. And then if you were selected, you, were, you got a booth for free. Mm -hmm. And included in that also, they, they did a video interview with you. Uh, and that appeared on the on the TechCrunch homepage uh, for a few days. That was really awesome. That again is is not directly like pitching journalists that you don't know directly is really really hard. If there's right. any people that is hard to connect with, the journalists they, they they get so much and they they always like keep you at arm's length or something. They're like yeah yeah, well, I'll have a look at it and yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, the, the building relationships part is interesting because I think that's what most people say. But then it's like, okay, well, how do you build relationships with journalists? Is it, like you said, most, mostly making connections through kind of mutual contacts? Is it initially kind of reaching out just to, 
you know, grab a virtual coffee or to help them out in some way? Like, what does it actually look like to build relationships with journalists that you can then kind of capitalize do, on later? They don't do virtual coffees. So. No, either, either you have some story which you sort of sell well to them uh, through someone else and they're like, sure, I, I, could, I could have a call and then they quickly call you, they see whether there's something in there. What helps is often journalists want to write this kind of sort of opinion piece around a specific topic and they'll call you and, and ask you for some input or they want to know about the latest gossip. And they call some people like, do you know about what's happening there? And if you help them, then that builds relationship. But yeah, if you want to get started, it's probably best to go through people you know and saying like, I have this thing here that I, I would like to talk to some journalists about. Do you know any journalists? And they may be with their startup. Fellow startup founders are, are a good one. Conference organizers often as well if you know any and it, it's like that with many things like we got our best business angels through other startups just by asking like okay you recently raised some investments did you talk to any people that might be interested in talking to us and that that's i think how most of our business angels came to us yeah. mm. or we came to yeah. them or... <laughs> right so the initial kind of growth and traction came from i mean it sounds like just like sales like i said working your, your network some pr and these Kickstarter events like Productun and, and AppSumo, how did the, the marketing and growth strategy evolve over time? And it's something you, you had mentioned content marketing a bit and organic traffic, like walk me through how it grew into something kind of more substantial. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's the things I mentioned earlier. So we get a lot through word of mouth. That has less to do with marketing. It's more the whole product experience, the support, the relationships you build with your customers, then you need to not be afraid to ask them to review you. And I really mean ask, not send some automated email where you say, please review us because mm. your, your success rate on that will be extremely low. What we try to do nowadays, we're, we're still trying to build some consistency, but when people are really excited about our product at that moment, add in, could you reviewers perhaps that really means a lot to us hmm. that's really important then we've been trying to build relationships a lot of different types of partnerships online to add value to others and then it's sort of like you give each other visibility somehow so we work together with some sales consultancies i get a lot of podcasts hmm. we have content partnerships with other software companies there are some companies that list CRMs. Most of them are paid opportunities there. People figured that it's a good way to make money. So, so then it's, it's just getting to a good financial agreement. And then next to that, our content marketing has really shifted strategy over, over the, the years. In, in the beginning, it was mostly about creating interest. So we would make these high value pieces which had a sort of hype factor to it and then what 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 our marketing guy at that moment would, would often do was like write it up first in google docs and then sh share the draft in a facebook group and say guys do you have any feedback because i mean in these facebook groups you cannot just throw in uh, a blog article but right. and then people would react to that they were like oh that's awesome and then after that, the blog post would go live in our blog and we would do all the promotion around that and, and et cetera. We didn't really focus 
very consciously on SEO, which was probably a mistake. But some of the articles written back then rank, but very few. Then we had a period where we really went for SEO that was focused on our audience, but not necessarily very linked to our product. And that's where, where we get a lot of traffic is if from stuff like if you look for uh, sales podcasts or startup podcasts or startup conferences or in investors or you'll often see our blog popping up. It, it doesn't have a whole lot to do with, with Salesforce, but it's, it's people we'd like to get a first touch with. And what, what we mostly do there then is retarget them with other articles that they might find interesting mainly through Facebook ads. And in many of these things, we have some, like we show Salesforce or in others, we ask for their email address. For instance, there's the investor list you want in a sheet. Well, you know, and then we can send more content as well. Then it doesn't have to be Facebook ads. But recently we've been uh, focusing way more on things more directly related to Salesforce. I think we stayed away from it for a long time because it's, it sounded like all this sales content is so boring, but it's actually really valuable to people. And it's a way better way to drive leads because throughout these, these guides, we can show Salesforce also sometimes. And then right. people already see themselves using Salesforce, you could say, throughout the reading of the post, which means that it's, it's maybe not the posts that, that get the most traffic, but they're definitely the posts that uh, generate the most leads, which is really important. But thinking back, I think we probably need some of all of the pieces, like the, the types of content, because if we would only write the sales pieces, I think it would be hard to rank the blog as a whole. It's also important to have some traffic drivers in there. The hype content, probably, Maybe at the stage that we were, it was good, but I would have focused it more on, 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 on SEO for the long run as well, because the real value in content marketing is when, when it becomes a consistent flow of uh, people reading stuff, then you sort of have that, that, you could say free marketing all the time, but you had an upfront mm -hmm. investment, of course, so it's not really free. Right. And it often takes very long for the investment to take off. Like most of our posts rank after four to six months, sometimes longer. But then when it does, then it's like, like you've built the software, you know, it's there, people consume it and, and, it, and it brings value. Like it, it's like you build value as opposed to when you run an ad, you're not building value. You just, and at the moment that you uh, turn off the, 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 the money, the budgets, then it just stops. Content is something that's, that stays there and, and keeps doing stuff yeah. yeah i mean it's it's a amazing kind of compounding engine when it actually does kind of get up and running i think you guys are very smart to start with the kind of kickstarters and then start investing in sort of these things that take longer but eventually pay off over time sooner rather than later right because the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago or the <laughs> second best time is today so you want to start as early as possible if you can yeah but not too early, I would say. I, I, I don't regret only starting with content marketing after, uh, I think, two years and a half in or something. Mm. Up to that point, I always told my colleagues, like, I'm not going to start a blog. It's a ton of work and we're not ready for it. In the beginning, what you need to do is, is spend, if, if you're like the, the business co-founder, 
spend all your time talking to customers, understanding them, onboarding them, understanding really well what it is that your company does. It's really like focusing on that selling much more on a one-to-one basis and as one-to-one as you can, preferably. Also guided, not just throw a trial at them and see whatever happens, mm-hmm. like really be there with them and get to know stuff. And, and the marketing, especially things like content marketing, that's when you, when you take that one-to-one thing you've been doing where you've built a lot of empathy you know a lot about these people and you, and you, and you sort of try to say okay I, I, I get it now I want to bring this to more people with less effort and you, you start scaling because I get a lot of people like other startups software companies around here and they've seen our content and they've seen our marketing and they're like oh this is really awesome I would like to listen like how you did this and, and how, how we can do it and then when they explain what they do, I sort of feel like it's not really super clear yet. And then I ask, like, did you, like, sell this a lot of times already? And I said, like, yeah, yeah, we have two pilots running, something around that usually. And I'm like, oh, maybe the marketing, I can explain you uh, what we do. First of all, the marketing we do today is not what, what, what we did in the beginning. So it's, it's totally different. And secondly, I think your time is way better spent now on sales than it is on on trying to get that marketing machine going and that's often like i don't know they're they're somehow disappointed by that answer in the beginning <laughs> but they they start understanding it after a bit like that it's that it's maybe you need to sort of like you know the crawl walk run uh, cliche like if you don't do the crawling first it's really hard to yeah. Or, or if you want the flywheel thing, you cannot just get the flywheel immediately to speed. It takes a lot yeah. of pulling first. Or, or what Paul Graham says, do things that don't scale first. That makes right. so much sense. Yeah, yeah. The sales part really is super, super key early on. I'm curious. I mean, given that you guys have done a lot of sales and as a CRM, so you hear a lot and you advise <laughs> a lot of people on sales. What's like the the sales flair? philosophy on on sales it could be even like software SaaS sales in particular if you want to get that specific but what's what is your general kind of approach and what you advise people to do and uh, the method if you will oh you mean like basic advice for people doing sales or uh... yeah i mean like what are like the maybe not the basics but like what are the high level do this don't do that type of things that you always advise people do to to get them that extra bit of advice and help and kind of practical tips they need to to make it effective yeah i'm i'm still gonna i mean the most important thing in sales is to stick to basics what most people do wrong is they don't like they're uncertain about themselves which makes that they prepared this thing that they hold on to like this this sales pitch or something and they're like corey i'm going to uh, throw this powerpoint at you for 30 minutes and then at the end, we'll see whether you want to buy. But that's not how sales goes, right? Sales goes is like, okay, so, so, so you're interested to talk. You're like, you're doing sales. How's that going? What are you using? What is exactly that you're looking for a CRM for right now? And then people have widely different reasons. You listen to it. You're like, oh, that's cool. And so so this, is, this is mainly the issue. Then I, I say, you know, if, if it's the case, then I say, well, with Salesforce, you can solve that. 
and then I focus on the, the specific part of our product that solves that because I'm not going to show the whole product, right? They have a specific issue, I show the product, and then after that, that's sort of satisfied, and then I can show the rest of it because they're, they're not going to buy a part of the product. Well, I mean, you can buy a specific plan which only has specific features and stuff, but, and that's, that's what a lot of people overlook. But I think that's mainly a, a sort of not being certain about themselves and then channeling that in the wrong way. Well, it's actually not really difficult to take a conversation from, the, from a listening standpoint, I think. It's just, I don't know, you just have to keep that in mind. Yeah, and then a second the... thing, yeah, is, is this is good on a one-to-one -one basis, right? So this is, if you do that, listening and it makes already a lot of difference but then you when you when you sort of try to scale that it's important to understand what the general steps are that you take people through because you as a salesperson your role is to get people from having a problem to being up and running with the solution and maybe further it depends how far your sales role goes so you need to guide people through those steps because people might not see these steps, but you're the expert at it. You've guided more people through these steps. So the first thing you do is making very clear for yourself what the steps are, because if you don't know the steps, it's very hard to guide people through it. So you sort of create the map and then it might be that people don't exactly follow that. They don't follow your, your sales process that you set out. And I said your sales process now, but it should be focused on the customer, right? Like the customer has a certain way they want to solve it. And you just, you just draw that out. It's more like a buying process than a sales process, but mm -hmm. we usually tell, call it sales process, whatever. You set out these steps, you make them very actionable uh, for yourself and for the customer. You're like, in this step, we're going to do this, this step, we're going to do this, and this step, we're going to do this. Then you uh, put that in your CRM, like you have this pipeline with stages, uh, you make this very actionable stages. And from that moment, you know very well, like this customer is here. So when I'm in touch with that customer, my job is to get them to the next stage and we're going to do this. And it might not be that they, are, they fit exactly and they do it exactly the way you like, but, but it's, it's important at least to sort of know the general thing. And that way, then you can, you can effectively take people on a personal level, but also at scale, take a lot of people through that process. And then third, probably, is just, just keeping all the information very well, because what, what you're trying to achieve as a salesperson is not to sell something once. You're in contact with tens, hundreds, maybe, it depends a bit of people that you you're you're trying to sell something and all of these people want to have a human experience not a an experience where they are treated as a number but they're treated actually like as as if you're selling it to a friend and it's it's very hard to to scale this sort of relationship like you can have uh, i don't know i was going to say it's, it's easy to have a, a good relationship with your wife but that that even is, is maybe not that easy but imagine doing that with tens or hundreds of people. That's really, really hard. And that's, that's ideally what you're trying to achieve, build a lot of good relationships. So you need some sort of system there and you need something that remembers things where you can see what the last touch was, where you can 
that reminds you to follow up where you can set what you need to do and where you see the information and all these kind of things that that's what the CRM does. So really thinking about a CRM in that way should also definitely help you with being more successful because just getting a CRM is not going to help. It needs to be a system that helps you with doing that because all, all the other things that you're, you're expecting to do with the CRM otherwise, they're not going to work because the very basis is, uh, is that part where you, where you build relationships and follow up people in, the, in, a, in a good way throughout their process. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. One of the things I really wanted to ask you about was competing with giants in such a competitive space like CRMs. I mean, like you said before, there's all these big names like Salesforce and HubSpot. And there's really, I mean, it's probably the, the largest, most competitive SaaS and software space out there. So how do you stand out? How do you think about selling kind of a, a broad case, a broad use case tool like a CRM? Do you do, are you like really targeted in, in who you go after? Is it more just the way that you market yourself? Do you like indirectly or do you like directly go head to head with a lot of these giants or do you kind of just try to pave your own way? Um, just curious on your thoughts on basically just competing in such a big, broad space like CRMs. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very good question. First of all, it, it's, 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 it is extremely hard. We cannot just, for instance, the dream of, of, of a VC is that you throw up some ads and that generates revenue and boom, you know, and then you throw in some more money and then some more ads and more revenue. That's not how it works for us because we're competing with, first of all, an enormous amount of companies, but I think an even bigger issue is some of them have an enormous amount of money. Uh, it's just outsized and companies like HubSpot also or Salesforce, they are very good at charging an enormous amount of money per customer. Like if a customer like HubSpot earns, let's say in the scale of 10 times more per customer than we do, which also means that they can spend 10 times more on acquiring customers than we, we do and naturally. So that, that really makes it hard in the sense that we cannot just rely on paid channels. We need to do all this organic stuff that we were talking about earlier. A big part of that is just making our customers happier, making everything easier, making a product that actually works in CRM. That's the, the reason why we started, like CRMs don't work, this one works. That's the largest part of it. But then marketing wise, we just try to do a lot of stuff that doesn't scale as easy because if it scales easily, then others have done it and they crush us. So for instance, some of the stuff that I, I talked about earlier is like building these relationships. That's not easy. That takes quite some commitment, but we focus on it on a consistent basis. Getting on lots of podcasts like this one. I think I've recorded over not even the past year, about 150, which, which is by the way, a really great way of getting in front of another audience than your own. I mean, there's, of course, things like conferences and stuff and online conferences. But I think most podcasts, well, not most podcasts, but a lot of podcasts, the audience per episode is bigger than the audience you get on a, on a, on a, on a talk, and whether it's at an actual conference or, or an online conference. Plus, during a talk, there's no real way of building a relationship with people. 
and and you also get zero opportunity to talk about your company like i I talked a bit about Salesforce earlier in a talk it's really really condensed it's really about the the powerpoint you're you're putting up and the 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 topic you're discussing there plus third it it takes an enormous amount of preparation so it's very very hard to scale while getting on podcasts is then a bit easier to scale but not as easy to scale as let's say ads but I, if, if you would all summarize it, it's just trying to create more value for people and build better relationships. And doing that across the product, the experience, the marketing, because that's something that is much more difficult to do for big companies. Like imagine HubSpot trying to build great relationships with its, with its customers. They have a huge organization where the CEO is extremely distant from, from customers, where you know they hire pe- new people all the time that don't really know uh, what's going on. We have a small, stable team with close communication lines, and for us, it's just much easier. The scaling, <laughs> they've done more successfully, obviously. So that's something we can't compete on. Yeah, no, but the I think that what, what you said was really key in that if it's going to scale, then the big companies are probably going to, to going to be there. They're going to scale it if they haven't already, right? And then it's sort of like a race to the bottom for who can charge the least, or it's going to race to the top for who can pay the most, you know, with the ad platform, whatever it is. So you have to go and find those things that maybe aren't worth it, or maybe kind of more aren't worth it for a big organization, or maybe they don't know about because because it's a smaller thing it's more niche thing you had mentioned things before i think you said like relationships with sales consultancies and agencies podcasts like this any other like things that don't scale or small things here and there that make a difference maybe in content marketing that's also a misunderstanding of many big companies they just think that churning out a lot of content have a bunch of copywriters write a lot of stuff we can actually successfully compete with a lot of large companies when it comes to content marketing just by writing valuable content. And that sounds maybe the way I just said it, a bit arrogant, but it's, it's actually the issue nowadays when you, when you type something into Google is most of the time you get this really superficial content because we've been creating these enormous content machines which just churn out content all the time written by people employed to do that and the issue is that these people don't necessarily know the thing that they're writing about at least not deeply so what they're going to do is they're going to google around a little bit as well they're going to read some other stuff that are out there already they're going to take that put it together rehash it and and then write something without any like basic insight behind it or new things or so you get all these really superficial articles it actually it's a it's a sort of a downward spiral it always gets more superficial and the simple thing we do there is is the rule like if we don't know the topic then someone else needs to write it we don't get copywriters to write stuff you know the whole copywriters that write what read what other copywriters wrote and then rewrite that Right. That's not a thing we wanna we wanna compete in, and that the good thing then for us is if you write something actually insightful in the right way, like respecting how it works with the technical SEO performance of the blog, 
how people land on your site and then and then think like am i going to read this or not you know all these kind of things then you you actually have a really good chance of of ranking even though you might not have the same amount of backlinks especially on the, on the domain as a whole but often also on the articles you don't have the same ad budgets to to send traffic to it you can still compete because google does more than checking backlinks that's that's how the algorithm started, right? They keep uh, denying it, I think, to a large extent, but they do, they do keep track of how people interact with what they're searching because that, in the end, is the biggest indicator of whether something is valuable, right? You have a bunch of search results, you click on one, you keep reading it, or you click on one and say, ah, and you go to the next one. Google knows and Google says, oh, this one is the one they liked. And like I said, it, it might take three to six months or even longer, but Google starts seeing these kind of things. And at some point you're ranking at the top because yours is the one that people interact the best with. Hmm. Right. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's a great, a great tip there. What's something on the horizon, maybe like an emerging technology or trend or tactic that has you kind of excited or curious? Oh, I think I can CRM. We've, we've, we've come far over the past few years, past five, six years. Things have changed a lot. Like people used to think about CRMs, like you said, at some, some point, like a, just a Rolodex kind of thing. I think we've, we've gone beyond that. It actually becomes about CRM, like customer relationship management, because I think relationships are defined by communication. And nowadays, CRMs are becoming more and more communication systems where you track this kind of stuff and the sort of the Rolodex, the Rolodex aspect is secondary. I think now at this point, they are becoming more like if it's sales CRMs, more like sales platforms. So where it, it also sucks in a lot of sales automation technology that has maybe popped up separately over the past few years and then it's all going to go towards towards taking over more and more of the routine things that salespeople do that don't necessarily need a, a salesperson because and and that's like it goes in in, in phases like you you, you build uh, systems that start automating more and more of the data about customers and the interactions and all that that's sort of the basis we we built first and then more and more tools go in there, which makes that it becomes even better for the salesperson to follow up things and do things and automate things. But it also generates more data. And then it goes towards towards using that data and exploiting it to, to actually unleash things that go further than, than algorithms and tools and stuff to, towards AI. Uh, and then I think we, we reach a new stage where a lot of the things that are not a salesperson listening to a customer and trying to guide them, all the in-between things, I think in the end can be automated. And then, that, then salespeople can really focus on their job, where nowadays they're still busy with lots of stuff that are that first don't come naturally to salespeople, secondly are, are well, better done by computers probably, uh, third are not really their job. So I think that's, that's gonna be changing. And it's not just in sales, for instance, you, you also had this in accounting. I think you can see the exact same thing. 
where accounting systems used to be uh, an accountant typing in a lot of like putting an invoice in and typing out stuff etc where most of that can be automated and accountants can actually start focusing on on providing real advice to their customers instead of the, the groundwork yeah computers can yeah. do that right is there a long-held industry belief or best practice that you disagree with the biggest belief we were finding with at least in the beginning but still is that salespeople are lazy and that the problem is not the software it's the salespeople and that if these damn salespeople would just fill out the crm it would all be solved <laughs> we really disagree with that in the sense that we believe that that much of the software out there puts these really high expectations which are unrealistic on salespeople or people in general. The, the software that works the best is the software that actually helps people, takes all the manual sort of actions out of their hands and just uh, gives them suggestions, helps them with stuff. And that's what we try to do. But Initially, I would do these customer interviews and, and I would be like, well, I'm trying to find out like what software to use, what issues are there and how can we solve them? People would say like, well, there's issues, but it's not the software, it's the salespeople. And I was like, no, I think the software can be better. They're like, no, I don't think so. You know, you take away their bonus. You maybe fire them if they don't do it. That, that, that works. That works for us. I'm like, mm. oh, okay, that's cool, but maybe it's not really how things are supposed to be. Yeah, that, that's an interesting, you know, that, that's a lot of talk around customer research and obviously you don't want to just be an order taker and build exactly what people need. There's a, there's a balance there between giving people what they want versus giving them what they need, even, even if they didn't ask for it, right? It sounds like you really went for that kind of theme of giving people what they need and not necessarily what they want because what they wanted was better salespeople and what you gave them was better software for the salespeople. How'd you approach that to actually you know, interpret Oof. essentially what you thought that they, they needed, not what they wanted. Yeah, we just felt it for ourselves and maybe some people didn't agree, but we were like, well, I mean, you know, this doesn't work for us and we're sure it doesn't work for you. And the reason why people think a certain way is just because that's the agreed way that, you know, there's a sort of a status quo and everybody has been adapting to it. Like another example is like we, the, the, the very essence of Salesforce in the beginning is, is that we, we pull in your mailbox and we, all of the emails are in a timeline. Like, like there's a company, there's a context, there's you or maybe your colleague and all the interactions you had were in a timeline. Up to that point, CRM companies had been telling their customers like, no, all the emails, that doesn't make sense you only store the, the important ones in there. Why had they been saying that? It's because technically they didn't want to get them all in, right? Mm. But it becomes this sort of thing where the customers also believe in that. The customers are like, yeah, no, I mean, all the emails, we only want the important ones. And then yeah, what we had to do was uh, first focus on people that, that saw and the, the, the benefits of having them all in there, that you could see the whole thing, and then go, go, go slowly to the ones that then started saying like, oh, maybe this is, this is actually better. So it's, it's hard when you're trying to change stuff, but it comes after a while.
Yeah. Interesting question I've been asking more recently, just kind of experimenting with is asking about something that you bought recently. Do you have a, a recent purchase or something you could walk me through to kind of get inside the head of, you know, why you bought it, how you found it, how it's been working for you? Yeah. The thing I was most excited about recently is these headphones here. They're from One More, I think it's called. Hmm. I had never heard about a brand before, but my I had these noise canceling headphones from Tautronics and they broke, like the, the cable is sort of getting loose. So they didn't work for me anymore. And I, I needed other ones. And I think I started doing research on the wire cutter. There's this thing from uh, oh, the yeah. New York Times, I think. Mm -hmm. That, that really is like, there's, there's many places on the internet where there's reviews and stuff, but I feel at least that they do their best to pick out some of the better things. I come from a place of knowing lots of review sites and how they work and my trust in the system is uh, severely damaged, but the wire cutter somehow, I don't know, I've, I've never worked with them, but it seems trustworthy. And the products that I find on there are actually good. And they, they suggested this one more. And what I really like about it is that it gives me a lot of peace. Sometimes I put them in and I don't even turn on music or a podcast or so. Especially when I'm working. Um, I just turn on the noise cancellation and I don't hear anything anymore. It's really, really peaceful. I don't hear my, my wife in the other room or even the the fan of my computer or whatever sound outside, it's all gone. Also really cool is that they have this, this wind functionality. Like I, I usually listen to podcasts outside when I'm walking somewhere or I'm taking the e-scooter somewhere or so. And with noise cancellation, that's really hard to, like it, it all starts breaking up, like the wind in, your, in, the, in, the, in the mics of the noise cancellation headphones. And uh, this wind mode keeps that to a minimum. It's not completely gone, but I can at least hear well what the people on the podcast are saying, which is, which is really cool. And they, they last for, I think, about 10 hours or so. So really excited, yeah. as you can tell. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, that's an awesome example. I'd also love to take a peek into your swipe file, as it were, into some marketing examples or campaigns you thought were you know, worthy of saving, maybe they're top of mind or just ones that, you know, people, brands, campaigns you admire. Are there a few top of mind that you could walk me through? Oh, I actually thought about, you asked me this before the podcast, but I thought about another one. The coolest I know right now is, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing that started in Belgium, but I think they sell the concept in, in, in the whole world. It's, it's called The Mole, in Dutch is The Mole. And the, the concept of the TV show is like there's, there's a, a bunch of people doing that, like, like, yeah, tasks, yeah, I don't know, uh, challenges. And there's one person in the group that is the mole. And that person tries to sabotage stuff and people don't know who that person is. And for the challenges, they get money, which goes to the prize pot, but the mole tries to keep that limited. And at the end of every episode, they need to answer a bunch of questions about, about the mole. And the person who has the, the, the most questions wrong basically has to leave the show. And then there's some side stuff to it. But now it's an insurance company. And in parallel with the TV show, like they sponsor the TV show, they have this thing, We is the Hunt, translated Who is the Dog. And it's like a parody on, on the mole with, with very short episodes, <laughs> like three minute episodes. 
and the there's actually a dog like this the participants are all humans and there's one dog and and everybody is like i don't know who the dog is but it's 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 super clearly a dog right right and then they, they need to do all these kind of tasks where the 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 dog is either really good at it or naturally sabotages it but but it's like they don't get it and the rest is all, is all parody like they have this there's the barista guy which which is all like all you know thinks he's the world and there's the the the, the simple person always makes all the very simple comments if you know what i mean it's it's really really well done i actually it's 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 marketing but i always look forward to watching it oh and what they market is is is, is the weirdest it's dog insurance oh okay uh, I yeah. love it. So they're yeah. like commercials, basically, right? They're like these little mini. Yeah, they're commercials. At the oh, end of the, the 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 episode, the guy always—I don't know how he does it. He always refers to the dog insurance. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can always guess like who in the next episode is going to leave, and if you guess it right, you can win a year of dog insurance. Oh, yeah. amazing. Cool, that's huh? genius. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to find that and link to it in the show notes. But that's an awesome one. Yeah, it's amazing. Any other ideas or campaigns or even commercials that come to mind? Oh, recently, well, that's, it's a bit less interesting. But a supermarket chain here in Belgium called Deleuze. I think they also have a, a US part to it. But it's actually is Belgian. They started somewhere in the neighborhoods of Charleroi, below Brussels. They locally in Belgium rebranded themselves to Belles to like show that they're supporting the local farmers and all that. So within their offering, to, they try to get more local stuff. Actually, the last thing they did was also quite genius. They they did a campaign where they said like Colgate, which is a competing supermarket, is the cheapest, and we are not the cheapest. There was just a, a campaign, like big billboards, like saying, we're not the cheapest, but, and then the next week they filled out the but be below it. And they said, if you want to eat healthy, then you come to Deleuze. And then they did this, they introduced at that moment, this plan where if you get a card, you know, this kind of cards, which usually amount to nothing, they, they you get some discounts with it and, and some points, whatever. With that card now, if you buy products that are healthy, we have this, this called, thing called Nutri-Score now, so mm -hmm. which goes from an A to an E-score. And if you buy things with A or B, then you get a discount on them. And the discount, uh, which is an extra genius, depends on how much you've spent in the past month. I think it's something like if you spent 250 in the month before total purchases in the in the supermarket, then you get a 10% discount on them, so it's a pretty hefty discount. And if you if you spend, I think 500, it even goes to 15%, uh, wow, which then also makes that you keep you keep going to the less right. You want to hit this number <laughs> so that you get a bigger discount on the on, on part of the products. Wow, really, really nicely done. That's awesome. Yeah, that's another another great example. I love that. Last question for you. When I say everything is marketing, what does that mean to you? What comes to mind? I was just thinking when I gave this example, just when I stopped talking uh, that everything is marketing, right? 
This, this is this is good marketing. Mar- good marketing goes beyond just a marketing campaign. It goes into the essence of stuff, like with the Deleuze campaign. This this doesn't only touch marketing. This actually, like I, I mean, they had to change the cash registries. They had to change their whole loyalty campaign. They had to, and then the 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 billboards that they did were almost an afterthought. Because everything was set up in such a way already that the marketing was was sort of easy and fits into the whole. It's it's like like people don't think like like a customer doesn't doesn't think in the same way as a company is organized. They don't think like oh that's marketing and that's sales and that's customer service and that's mm. you know they they have just an experience with a company, and when it all comes together. I think the best the best marketing experiences are created when you can really redefine the customer experience. Uh, that's that's yeah, that's the examples I I like to give. Like when it's just, I mean the other one, the the we use the home thing, the thing with the dog. That's pure marketing. That is just genius. But that's that's much much harder and and also it doesn't offer as much value to the to the customer. When it really goes through all the, the 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 silos in the company and actually changes it for the better for people, I think that's the best marketing. That's amazing. Well, uh, thank you so much for sharing everything today. It's been awesome. It's been a wealth of knowledge. Love, love, love the examples, and I appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, it's fun. Thanks again to Yarun for coming on the show. Make sure to check out SalesFlare at salesflare.com if you're interested in new CRM. And if you can spare a moment, click on the link in the show notes and pop on Twitter to thank him for sharing everything today and let him know what you thought. To wrap up, here are a few of my takeaways. You want relationships in business, not transactions. Relationships are built on communication. Starting that communication dialogue is marketing. If you want relationships in business, you need marketing. That's just the fact of it. Also, people don't think in terms of marketing versus sales versus customer service. Everything is an experience and every experience is marketing. And finally, big competitive markets have trade-offs, right? Big markets are well-established, they're well-known, there's tons of demand. It's easy to niche down in big markets as well, but it's also crowded, it's ultra-competitive, and it can be difficult to break into. If you've got a question or takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swipefiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.